I'm Rebecca Miller, the writer and director of Maggie's Plan, and you're listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I'm trying to tell you, you're not even listening to me. I'm trying to tell you that the man... And I'm adding a course of risperidone and lithium to your meds. What's that for? To keep you from hurting anyone else. And yourself. You serious? The Crown's Claire Foy in a clip there from Steven Soderbergh's latest, the paranoid thriller Unsane. A course of risperidone and lithium also recommended for the duration of film spotting madness, best of the 90s edition. We've got results from some brutal Sweet 16 matchups, plus our review of Unsane. Before sunrise is definitely going to need some lithium. Yeah. That and more ahead on film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Some wild games last weekend in The Rill, March Madness, upsets that we've never seen before. 16 seed taking down a one seed. I wish we could tease our listeners and say that the Film Spotting Madness Sweet 16 was equally as jaw dropping and surprising. It's not, but the results will still tantalize and torment, I'm sure. There are a few minor upsets, too, right? There are. We had? There are a couple. We'll get to the results of our Sweet 16 contest here in a little bit. We started with 64 of the best films of the 90s. By the end of this show, we'll be down to the Elite Eight. Some of the upsets from last week, Reservoir Dogs lost to seven. Michael Mann's Heat lost to Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia went down to Spike Jones's being John Malkovich. And a couple of matchups that we were really monitoring this weekend— Fargo versus Before Sunrise and Josh's beloved Rushmore versus Seven. I'm on pins and needles for those results. We will have those film spotting madness results and the Elite Eight matchups later in the show. But first, a psychological thriller from anyone else might be titled Insane. But for Steven Soderbergh, whose movies are always inverting things, only Unsane would do. Sawyer Valentini, please follow me. Look, I I don't have a lot of time. I, I should be back at work, so what am I doing in here? Take off your clothes down to your underwear. I'm not sure what's happening here. The door's locked. It would be better for everyone, especially yourself, if you just do as I ask. There's been some kind of mistake. By signing this, you've consented to voluntary commitment. I am being held here against my will. Do you know how many calls the cops get like that every week? Those are from crazy people. Josh, I've got three excuses this week for why I don't have one of those exceedingly well-crafted, eloquent setups that we strive for here on film spotting we'll this see if you'll buy any be good of them. yeah i probably won't pull it off but we just came from the theater after seeing steven soderbergh's latest unsane we've had no time really to write anything and even if i had this is absolutely a still processing review i'm not sure i'll ever be able to fully process the movie we just saw and i'm seriously rethinking whether or not we should ever do one of these reviews again. I think Unsane may have broken me. Really? Yeah, I need I need at least a good 24 hours to really consider okay. a movie like this, and we'll talk about why, I'm sure. My second excuse is, of course, I could have come in and done some preparation. I could have watched the trailer. I could have read just a little bit about it and thought about Soderbergh and his background as an experimenter with different genres and styles and techniques and talked about the fact that this was all shot on an iPhone 7 and tried to weave something together out of that. But 
I genuinely, and this is usually my approach, but especially here with this movie and Soderbergh, I wanted to go in knowing as little as possible and see where the film took me. The third reason is if I did actually provide a bunch of context here for you and our listeners, and I guess I will say just this much. We know it stars Claire Foy, and in this case, I was aware that she plays a woman who is voluntarily, but not really by her own free will, committed to a mental institution. So if I said even more, I wouldn't be able to ask you this question, and this is the question I'm really dying to hear you answer. What is Soderbergh up to here? What is he doing in Unsane? Well, you know, I don't mean to imply that there aren't depths and levels to be plumbed. But I do think on the surface, this is a pretty simple genre exercise, though I will say it's of a different sort of genre exercise than Ocean's Eleven, right? Yes, or Logan Lucky. Yeah, yeah. Or many others. I would agree. I would agree. But, you know, really this, for me, maybe there weren't, and I think this might be one of those Soderbergh films where I don't appreciate it enough for you, even though I am coming out positive on it. I, I generally thought this was compelling and interesting. I think it could have benefited from a few more surprises, though. I I sort of felt like for the last third, at least, everything was set. The players were going to play who we had already known. And for a movie that is, you know, essentially a psychological thriller, I almost expected there were going to be a little more twists and turns or revelations or even maybe thematic explorations yet to come. And there Mm -hmm. weren't. Instead, I would say the final few moments really become a little repetitive from what we'd already seen. So I think there are a lot of interesting stylistic things going on here that we can talk about in terms of those cameras and how they are used and what that does, not only for the genre, but also what it does for performance. And maybe that's a good place to throw it back to you because my favorite thing about Unsane is getting to watch the queen, Claire Foy, who I have watched throughout The Crown in a few seasons now, really go a little bonkers Mm -hmm. and be good at it. I think she's really good here. I think she's really strong. And I think there are a lot of performers who are strong in this movie, including Joshua Leonard when he shows up. And I've been a fan of his from several other films going back to, I know, a movie you adore, The Blair Witch Project, but Hump Day and he's popped up in other movies and been really good. Higher ground. always, yeah, higher ground. He's consistently a strong actor and he's doing some work here that I think rises above the kind of cliche it could be because we've seen characters like him and that's all i'm really going to say at yeah, this point because shouldn't get into I, it too I don't want to get into that that element of the movie because once he is introduced i think if you knew too much it would take away a surprise for me as far as questioning the reliability of what we're hearing from our main character and there is some mystery surrounding that that soderbergh is playing with and even the character at one point vocalizes maybe this is all in my head right so i again don't want to get into too much with the leonard character but wouldn't you agree that that is there's mystery to it for a while but it's clarified fairly early on it is and then doesn't change no which i'm not saying it has to but you kind of know the the chips fall fairly early in this film. I think they do, but I guess that for me is also still one of the surprises because it comes back to the style of the film and the genre he's playing with here that I had no idea he was going to be playing with and why I'm glad I didn't read anything at all about it, much less really more than a one-sentence plot description. We've said psychological thriller, I think, three times already in this show, and that's how this 
movie certainly begins, but at some point, this becomes a full-blown horror film. This is a horror movie, and it's funny because after I saw the movie, I was walking to the car, and I opened up Letterboxd, as I sometimes do, and I logged the movie that I had just seen the film. So you type in the film, and someone smarter than me will explain this connection, why this happens this way, but when you start typing the words unsane, the only other movie that pops up is Tenebrae, the Dario Argento film. And I don't get that. Maybe there is a clear connection. There's nothing that similar between those words. But this is a giallo horror movie. The ending of the film, without giving anything yeah, away, I'm just talking about the, the closing image really emphatically states that. Great closing shot. Yeah, I think so if you are on the right wavelength with this movie. It could also be a closing shot that you just kind of smirk at and and shake your head. But even leading up to that, this movie does announce itself as a horror picture and as a movie that made me profoundly uneasy in my chair for the bulk of its running time. Just on that visceral level, I guess I am recommending this movie because it is an experience. I think everything Soderbergh is doing with the iPhone, we'll get into some more details about that, is really effective, very claustrophobic, very much making me feel just as crazy, frankly, as the main character starts to believe she might be. And then just the fact that it becomes that full-blown absurdist horror film in a way was enough for me to appreciate that Soderbergh is flexing another muscle. Yeah, it's so it's a horror film in the way that, well, I guess in some ways that Get Out is a horror film mm-hmm. where suddenly it gets actually gory in ways that I didn't expect the first time I saw Get Out. It's a horror film in the way that Maybe these are even more closely aligned in terms of plot, but say uh, Scorsese's Shutter Island, or I don't know yeah. if you ever saw Gore Verbinski's Cure for Wellness, which was I did a not. really freaky, not entirely successful, but interesting sort of imprisoned patient horror yeah. film. Or, for me, Samuel, Samuel Fuller's Shot Corridor. Shot Corridor is, yeah. right, maybe the most obvious That's the one. go-to here. So, um, and that, you know, the but the final shot, even coming after that explicit horror, also returns everything to the psychology, you know, mm-hmm. because what's what's scary in that final shot is essentially what is may or may not be going on in her head. OK. Yes. So it returns us to that psychological space. And uh, that space is the most interesting thing about the film in terms of camera work and performance. So mm-hmm. to go back to Foy uh, on yes. The Crown, she's she's very good at sort of this simmering panic, you know, where there are, there are many scenes where she's trying to figure out how to respond to this situation that she she bears the weight of the crown mm-hmm. and whenever something pops up, instead of responding immediately towards it dramatically, you just see her kind of simmering and sitting with it. Very busy eyes as an actress, which is is crucial there and also crucial here, but in a different way. The first scene where you see her in her office setting and she's having a difficult phone conversation, uh, her eyes are moving very quickly. It's, it's where you trace her thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that I was familiar with. What I was not familiar with, and it happens in that conversation too, is how immediately firm and take charge she mm-hmm. is. All right. So we're introduced to her as this. She's an analyst for a bank right. or a financial advising firm, mm-hmm. something like that. And um, she's a really aggressive person in that role, and she carries that aggression with her into this institution. This is one of the things that kept me interested, Mm -hmm. is that even when things get bad for her, she doesn't kind of just wilt or try to play it quiet. She raises hell. Yes. And that gets her into – 
even more trouble in many instances. And again, maybe it's just a contrast of seeing her doing something so different than what she does on The Crown. But it was really exciting to have that sort of force and that vitality, not only from that performer, but from a woman in this role who is not going to just sit back and have things happen to her. The things that happen to her are because of drastic actions. Well, once the initial mistake is made. Yes. The things that happen to her are often because of drastic actions she's taken. And that just yes. makes it makes her a more interesting character. No, you're right. She's a victim, but she certainly doesn't play herself as if she is a victim. And I think that is one of the most interesting aspects of the performance. First of all, I'll say the other layer we see of her is not just her taking charge and being firm, even when everything is stacked against her. But we also see the elements where where she tries to then charm her way out yeah those couple scenes where she becomes a salesperson she becomes a salesperson and she's she's now realizing that okay that old approach isn't going to work but i can charm them i can turn it on and i can convince them and she seems fully convinced that she can get what she wants and she can get out of this scenario just by saying what she perceives to be the right thing so there are a lot of layers a lot of nuance to the performance and i think you touched on it With that firmness, the thing I like about seeing that scene early on and recognizing how she is in that work setting and that phone call is that she is someone who is emboldened and is trying to take charge of her life. We don't know that her life is as difficult as it is and that she has this much going against her and she's this generally uncomposed, let's say, in terms of just understanding what she's doing day to day. She is struggling as a character, and we see that finally in some of her personal interactions. But she is trying to impose her power and impose her agency when she is a woman in a scenario, and there is the scenario of just everyday life in the workplace, where instantly we see the dynamic between her and her boss, and then also when she actually gets into this true setting of powerlessness, the mental institution, how she is constantly fighting against that, how it's it's not in her nature to just accept that, but to struggle against it is one of the fascinating things about this movie and the performance. Yeah, and that's one of those threads, one of those layers that is definitely there that I don't want to dismiss this as just a slight genre exercise because Soderbergh includes some very purposeful shots before she even gets to the institution of walking down the street and men leering at her. It's not over the top, but you notice it in the background and it definitely comes into play as well. That's you're right to describe it as the word power because there are power dynamics within the institution that kind of lay bare what she was already living with outside. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely that thematic coherence going on throughout. Yeah. And I think this is another movie and I think we can find, a few of these in Soderbergh's canon where it's a movie about power, but it's also a movie about identity. And when your identity is essentially stripped away from you, whether it's an institution that it's imposing its will on you and you can't fully fight back against just as an individual, or it's you yourself, it's that combination of the institution and the fact that you yourself are questioning your own identity, what you really believe. Once you've you've fractured that within yourself, then you're obviously more susceptible to the institution. Okay, so that's the other really interesting thing about the film, and it's right there in the script written by Jonathan Bernstein and James Greer, is that both possibilities can be true, right? She can be there yes. against her will because of nefarious reasons. Mm-hmm. And she can be having a serious mental crisis. Right. And until they clarify specifically, until the plot clarifies what's happening, 
I had no idea. Right. And and that's, again— I was questioning myself and her the whole time. And I think that is held in tension yes. for you could make the case the entire film. And that's an interesting right. tact to take. It's one of the things I want to go back and watch it again yes. to really try to suss out. And I also like in the script as well and how Foy captures this in her performance is that this crisis that she's facing, this psychological crisis at least, is rooted in two traumas that we come to learn about. And I think both of those, uh, again, we won't detail them, but are interwoven nicely throughout the film so that it leaves us questioning how much damage has she taken on because of these experiences. And we're kind of, you know, we're clearly still left with that question to a different degree at the end of the film. Yeah, we are. Now, the iPhone approach here. Obviously, we saw it to great effect in Sean Baker's Tangerine, the first film really to gain some attention and deservedly so, our Golden Brick winner here on the show a few years ago. I think somewhere along the way, maybe back when we were doing our fall movie preview and those questions, I saw a description of this movie that said something about it being shot in secret. And it occurred to me today that I probably misinterpreted what secret meant. I thought that not only was it shot on an iPhone, Josh, but the iPhones allowed Soderbergh to shoot in such a way where they were basically capturing, it was, I think I've said this, it was the Bowfinger style, where it's like the actors know, in this case, the actors know that they're making a movie, but the rest of the world doesn't know. And he's surreptitiously capturing this play out against the backdrop of everyday life on an iPhone. It did hit me earlier today that actually secret probably just meant nobody knew he was making it and no one talked about it. And that's that's really the case. Now, early on, there are some shots. Yeah, I was going to say. There are some shots very early on that reinforce what we learn about one of the central traumas in her case and reinforce this idea of voyeurism and kind of a powerlessness that the iPhone does reinforce being shot at a distance through tree leaves as if Soderbergh might be out there and no one else in the world knows this is being caught on tape, so to speak. And maybe that actually is the case. But there are obviously so many other shots where this is just like any other movie you've seen. So I don't think it was really shot in secret. That said, that iPhone technique clearly allows him to put that camera in places that simply are unconventional. And we get a lot of those lower angle shots, but close-ups shot widescreen, but because of the flatness of that iPhone image, the faces dominate. And it does suggest this kind of heightened sense of delusion. And also it makes us uneasy as viewers because any movement when you're in that close is also heightened. So I think it does add really to that overall technique, what he was clearly going for here in terms of making us as viewers feel as if we are in the exact same physical space. And I did feel trapped in this institution, like these characters, certainly like Claire Foy's Sawyer, but also in the same headspace. And that's a scarier place to be. Yeah, I think for a lot of the scenes, it's almost unconventional because it's so conventional, meaning if you and I had our camera phone, yes. we would set it on this desk. If we wanted to record us right now, we'd set it on this desk at the exact same angle he chooses exactly. there. That's just So yep. we've seen that done just like amateurly or every day. So to, to watch a psychological thriller from that perspective is jarring right. because it has a level of reality to it. It has a level of familiarity. And yet it's heightened. It's a, it's blown yeah. up. It's huge on the screen. Yes. And those close-ups are so intense. They are. Because of that technique. Yeah, so, and I think you're, you're right to point that out, that 
it is every day. There is something about it where Soderbergh is tapping into this horror genre. Absurd was the word I used earlier, but surreal. There is a surreal aspect to it. At the same time, notice how much early on phones play a key role in the movie. And we get a lot of shots that do suggest that camera is sitting. Just what you said, Josh, I noticed it too. The camera is sitting where the character would place it, where the character would be using it in some of these scenes. And it does give you a certain sense of... I suppose, of calm early on almost that, okay, yeah, this is this is what we're used to seeing. But then he completely subverts that with the imagery later in the film. Yeah. And there's it also lends itself to a lot of long single takes. But we usually think of those as being, you know, really dramatic Mm -hmm. and calling attention. But no, here the camera doesn't move at all. It just sits there on the desk looking at the character. Now we do get, especially when we move into the institution, there are a few tracking shots, however, whatever you call it, when an iPhone is involved, but there's a little more movement there. And then there's that, you know, the really show off bravura sequence, which yes. I which I did like. Where she loses she, it? Yeah, she gets a, a, a dose of medication she wasn't supposed to. And it's not only, you know, what we've seen is the camera placed almost must be attached to her back somehow, just above her head, looking down at her. Mm-hmm. But then the superimposition yes. of her so face. So we're seeing her face. And what she's seeing. We're seeing the back of her head and her face through it. It's really jarring. And she's going through a violent episode. So she's moving frantically around the room. And the sound design and Mm -hmm. music here as well, which is very sparse. It doesn't come up often. Mostly this is, you know, just a quiet film. But then often in moments of violence, you'll get, uh, there's a bit. A bit of scoring here, but really more design. There's popping, Mm -hmm. there's scraping, really disturbing scraping noises. And that definitely comes into play during that sequence where she's lost control. Yeah. I think about that scene early on, too, that we touched on where she's at work and she is being very forceful with her client. And she says something that I do think kind of cues you into one of the themes that Soderbergh is possibly exploring here, where she's basically saying, I've analyzed all the data and I've given you the facts and you don't like the interpretation. The idea being that everything ultimately is up for grabs, that Almost anything is subjective based on the perspective of the person who's looking at it. And this movie, with those iPhone shots, becomes one about how we as viewers perceive her, how we perceive other people seeing her, how she perceives herself. Every character at some point has established sort of a narrative for themselves that they are trying to follow. And at some points that narrative gets challenged. I even think it comes up when we hear about her name, Sawyer Valentini. It's this, this unusual name. And she somehow even has a little bit of a backstory behind that, that defines her as somehow as atypical, as special as someone who isn't the same as all these other people who are in this institution. So Soderbergh is, is doing something there that if I had more time, I would probably want to explore a little bit more. There's something about the iPhone shot too, in terms of the color and playing with that, that expectation of reality versus artificiality where It's now what we're all used to seeing every day. We're constantly looking through our phones and taking images and photos, and they all have that kind of oversaturated yellowish look to them. And it feels off because we're not used to sitting in movie theaters looking at those images. But then, as I said, it is what we are all 
looking at every day. Yeah, exactly. So Thomas Newman is the composer, actually. Just look that up and I think does some good effective work here on the film. So you mentioned the performances that you liked. We already talked about Foy and Joshua Leonard. Amy Irvine appears as Claire Foy's, the character's mother, and I think is good in a couple of scenes. I did really like Jay Farrow as another patient who she befriends and kind of gets some information from. He's been there for a while before her. How did you feel about Juno Temple, who I know we've praised her in other performances? Yeah, I really like her in Killer Joe, and there's been a few others. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have... I don't have a take on Juno Temple. She's another patient. She's another patient, and she's certainly giving a bigger performance than everyone else in the movie. But I guess for me, Josh, that worked because she scared the hell out of me. And Mm. so putting myself in the position of Claire Foy in the bed next to her, she added to my unease. Yeah, that's true. I'll I'll give her that. Sometimes I fear for these performers who make a strong mark, as she did in Killer Joe— they sometimes will go on to give then a Juno Temple performance. Yeah. I, I, we saw this happen a little with, with Ben Foster, I think. And he's he's gone on to do other great work too. But early on, sometimes I feel like they can get trapped in like, now I have to give a performance that's going to stand out in the way the other yeah. performance did. Well, she's way scarier than and, the, the naive girl she is in. Killer Joe. It's true. Yeah. It's true. But just but the, there is a that quality pressure to, to know that I, I, the camera gravitated towards me has right. to be really difficult to deal with is how do I translate that now moving forward, knowing I'm not in the starring role, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to be in another supporting role and kind of to, to stand out. So I think it here, it probably tips a little bit more towards that edge of too much, but I do agree. I She's, she is pretty scary. Too. I like too. And I feel like we just talked about this a little bit in relation to another film. I like the way Soderbergh uses, quote unquote, real people. It seems like maybe I'm wrong. It feels like he's using, in a few cases anyway, non-professional actors or certainly, and my point still stands, even if they are professional actors, non-movie stars or non-recognizable faces. Good faces. Yeah, just good faces. When you see some of these people pop up, it instantly adds a certain sense of comfort, which, again, this whole movie is putting you on edge all the time between that kind of comfortable feeling and the feeling that you're watching this horror show play out. And speaking of faces, there's a great horror effect, unless the movie was messing with my head to this point that it didn't really happen. Again, I'm not going to give it away, but where a face we don't expect appears in just a sliver on the face of a character whose it isn't. Did you did you notice that too? I think I know what you're talking about. Yes. If if that really happened and I wasn't just, you know, getting a little loopy myself, that was a nice touch. Well, with what Soderbergh is up to here, I wouldn't put it past either of us for having our own delusions. Unsane is out now in limited release. If you get a chance to see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. So was I only bluffing when I teased that Before Sunrise was in danger of getting booted from Film Spotting Madness, or did Fargo really take it down? We have Sweet 16 results next. Stay with us.
Wait, wait a second. Before we attack each other and tear ourselves to shreds like a pack of maniacs, let's just open the sack first and see what's actually in it. It might not even be worth the trouble. A clip there from Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. I feel like we've been talking about this movie quite a bit. That's because we had some movie passes to give away to an advanced screening here in Chicago. Josh, as we sit here right now, you have seen this movie. I'm dying. Saw it today. I'm dying to get your take on it. Do we have one of those patented Larson first impressions you want to drop on us? Yeah, or you can yeah. find that on Twitter. Oh, okay. It's, it's visual, so I can't really recreate it here. Mm, you it's went, a nonverbal you went emojis? response to Isle of Dogs. You went emojis in response to Wes I Anderson? Gif. I went GIF. Okay. Larson on film on Twitter, and you can see it. Wow. I will jump over there as soon as we are done. That is the film we plan to discuss next week on the show. You've seen it. I will be seeing it right before we tape. So even though I vowed to never do one of these still processing reviews ever again, I'm going to have to do it with Wes Anderson next week. And not to make you feel even more uneasy about that, but you're not going to be happy. No? I, all, all I'm going to say is many levels, many levels to process, Adam, mm. and you will have little time to do it. Can't wait. <laughs> Look forward to that next week on the show, as well as our Film Spotting Madness final four matchups. Now, Josh, in a couple of weeks, you are going to be leaving us. Michael Phillips stepping in. Tasha Robinson also going to be stepping in for a week as you are making a triumphant return. At least I want to believe it is for you to the Conference on World Affairs. I like this uh, press agent side of you yes. for me. University of Colorado at Boulder, April 9th through the 13th. Now, speaking of Wes Anderson, yes. last year we taped an entire show a sacred cow conversation about Rushmore with you stuck in a basement somewhere, I think, yeah, at the, the University of Colorado. The basement of their theater department, which I've already been told by Michael J. Casey, the Boulder Weekly critic who set me up with Ebert Interruptus, that that's no longer available. Okay. So I have to find, if I'm going to call in, we don't know yet if I'm going to. I have to find another bunker right. on campus. Well, we will see how that plays out. But you were there to talk about Rushmore. You had recently completed, at the point we were taping, your Ebert Interruptus. Tell listeners who have no idea what those two words mean when smushed together, what that is. This is something that Roger Ebert led for many, many, many years. So it's a great honor to be able to try my hand at it. And I must not have been a disaster because, yes, they did invite me back. The basic idea is you watch a film in full on Monday as the conference is going on alongside this event, the Conference on World Affairs. And then we revisit it. We get back together again the next day and start with the first scene play the movie, and anyone can raise their hand, shout out, stop, make a comment, observation, question, and proceed from and there. And this year, and Cedar Rapids, congratulations. <laughs> I tried. I tried, could not convince the committee. No, I'm really excited about what we're doing this year because it needs to be a film that can sustain close inspection over three or four days, right? this We don't knock out the movie the next day. We do this for three more days. Mad Max Fury Road. Mm. Can you see it? That'll be fun. I mean, think about yeah. the level of visual detail. It's almost a silent film. Mm -hmm. And so you can absolutely dig into all of the elements at play. I don't know in the course of Ebert Interruptus history how many action films they have done. Generally, they tend to go older in terms of when the film was released. I think even Rushmore in 98 was pushing that a little bit. But last year after we got done, we talked about what 
might we want to try? And Mad Max Fury Road came up as a suggestion, and right away it seemed like that would be a ton of fun. Well, I think it will be. Now, it says in my notes... Film spotting meetup details to come, but as everyone knows, based on the bar tab from the last film spotting meetup when you went to one of these conferences, that's not going to happen because your credit limit has been reached. I know. I, that's what I needed to talk to you about. That's why I couldn't really give any details. I, I thought it, it might end up being like a, a picnic outside. Have fun at Chuck E. Cheese, everybody. Oh, please, no, please. <laughs> I love, too, that you have been recently to the Conference on World Affairs and the Search for Meaning Festival. Is that what it was called? It was. Search for Meaning Festival. I just want to throw out there for Uh everybody listening, maybe you're organizing an event. You can have me much easier, much cheaper for anything that's much less profound than those. Just just slap any old title on it. What sort of conference would you 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 like to preside over, Adam? People drinking beer and watching movies fest? Yeah, well. <laughs> I'll do that. That kind of costs you, as you can see from my Seattle yeah. tab. Okay, maybe that will backfire on me. There will be some film spotting meetup details to come if we can sort out all the finances. And we got to raise funds, apparently. <laughs> that's Kickstarter true. for the film yeah. spotting Boulder meetup. Yeah, filmspotting.net <laughs> slash events. That's where we post such event info and also where we post information about movie passes when we have them to give away for advanced Chicago screenings. Next week, also, you will hear the fifth film, In our sixth film, Vincent Minnelli Marathon, we're going away from musicals. We've got 1956's Vincent Van Gogh biopic, Lust for Life. Kirk Douglas is back. Another Kirk Douglas experience. I love him. And Anthony Quinn also stars in Lust for Life. If you're already subscribed to the Film Spotting podcast, you'll find our reviews for the first four films of the marathon in your feed. Our last one was the 1953 Fred Astaire Sid Charisse musical, The Bandwagon, Michael Phillips joined us for that, schooled us as he always does. And mm-hmm. he's not back for this one because he may never want to come back for another Minnelli discussion after I'm sure I at least so disappointed him. Yeah, you were even more down on it than I was. Mm-hmm. I had, let, let's say, quibbles. You, can we say disliked? Issues. Yeah. You had issues? You can say it. Stronger issues? Okay, yeah. I don't. There are better know. Minnelli films. You might want to look for someone else to fill in for me than Michael because right. he may not be He may be back. off the books. Those marathon bonus episodes post to our podcast feed on Wednesdays. You can subscribe to get those shows via Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. You can also listen to those shows at filmspotting.net and find our full marathon lineup as well as past marathons at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Our Manelli Marathon, of course, is presented by Mubi. An algorithm, Adam, has no business choosing your films. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. And each day they introduce a new gem. You then have one month to watch it. So whether it's a timeless classic or a festival darling, maybe an acclaimed masterpiece, each of these films is hand-selected by experts. Plus, you can delve deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews on Mubi's notebook. Couple of highlights this week. New to the platform, Mimosas from 2016, Oliver Lax's award winning second film, finds the director entering genre territory and remarkably pushing its boundaries. Movie says, spellbinding and mysterious. It's a spiritual western, a desert odyssey, and a daring invitation to jump into the unknown. And if you're not intrigued by that, and I don't know how you couldn't be, there's Meshes of the Afternoon from 1943, a landmark short from the godmother of the American avant garde, Maya Darren. No other film describes the 
logic mystery of dreams quite like this one. Its miraculous images are potent enough to find a way into your own dreamscape as if Unsane didn't have me bothered enough this week. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. We have some feedback, Josh, on our Film Spotting Madness Fund that will help get us into the results. This is Josh in Cincinnati. So I have a question about the rules of the madness. If I named my daughter after Magnolia, can I no longer tell her that since it no longer exists? If so, maybe I'll change her name to Mia before it sticks. Yeah. I'm going to say that would only add to the mystery Mm-hmm. and allure of her name. If you can just say it, it, this film that once existed that was, you have to talk about it very vaguely. Yeah. You can remember it. It's vanished right? forever. Josh in Cincinnati can still remember it, though. That's true. So he can describe We're Wiping it out her. your memories. No, no, and, and, and say That's it was next this. madness. <laughs> You're going to take it that We're far, drunk with you? power, you the are. selection committee. Yeah, I think, I think this actually gives her name more stature. I like that. So it's a bright side of the fact that that Magnolia has been incinerated. And if that all wasn't crazy enough, let's get to the madness. Dr. Guggenheim, I don't want to tell you how to do your job, but the fact is, no matter how hard I try, I still might flunk another class. If that means I have to stay on for a postgraduate year, then so be it. We don't offer a postgraduate year. Well, we don't offer it yet. Just bring up the grades. No postgraduate options in the film spotting madness tourney, Josh. Sorry, Will Wes Anderson's aforementioned Rushmore survived sudden death academic probation. It faced off against David Fincher's seven in its Sweet 16 matchup. And I know I gave you a little bit of a scare this weekend. Yeah. It was tight. Seven once again in contention to pull off an upset against a beloved film in the last round. It was Reservoir Dogs. We'll see how it did. Even Monday, it was still close, right? It was still very close. We will get to those results in a moment. First, a quick madness recap. 64 of the best films of the 90s, only one can reign supreme. Yes, it's our riff on the March Madness basketball tournament. And this week, you're going to get the results of our Sweet 16 matchups. We'll start with the biggest margin of victory to the smallest, and we'll save any upsets for the end as well. So we're going to start with the number three seed, Fargo, from the Coen Brothers, one of four Coen Brothers films in The Tourney, one of two Coen Brothers films in The Sweet 16, going up against Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise. Let's also start with a comment from Chad in Evanston. For me, this is the first truly excruciating death match of the tournament. Two singular creations from renowned auteurs. But I'm voting for Fargo, and here's why. One, we still have time to enjoy and memorize before sunset <laughs> and before midnight before they're inevitably knocked out of their tournaments by Children of Men in the Tree of Life, respectively. So, there you go. Next year. He's looking ahead. We're going to the decade of... The naughties, Josh. Uh, I'm just going to keep saying it. What does that mean? It makes you so uncomfortable. I'm going to keep saying it. The aughts, the 2000s, and yes, Children of Men will be part of that. And then the Tree of Life will be part of the next decade. Mm -hmm. We're going to close out this decade by doing a little madness on that. We're in the middle of a three-year plan. We are. All right, Chad's second point. I voted against the Big Lebowski, but feel strongly about the Coen brothers surviving another week. Three, I'm riding with dazed and confused to the death, so Linkletter still has a chance. Four, the world needs feckless William H. Macy now and forever. All good reasons. David Hoffman and Queen says this was tough. Fargo is very arguably the Cone's masterpiece and undoubtedly one of the films of the decade. But in the end, I voted by looking at what's left in the rest of the bracket. Silence of the Lambs. Seven. Goodfellas. Unforgiven. Fight Club. Pulp Fiction. So much blood. So much crime. So much darkness. 
I'm voting before sunrise because I want to hang on to some love and sweetness. And you know what? I didn't think that through consciously. But last week when I somehow went against my second favorite Coen Brothers film and really a movie that's definitely in my top 50 of all time, I voted against it and went before sunrise. I think that's because this tournament really is filled with some of those dark, violent films and something like Before Sunrise. I know we both felt like it. It just needs to stay around. You know what? Things just got a lot darker. Oh, yeah. This was a whooping. Fargo took it with 72% of the vote. (laughs) Okay. Well, you made a great case, David, and we are on board, but only 28% of our listeners were. Speaking of crime and violence, the number two overall seed in our tournament is Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. It went up against a little bit lighter fare, I suppose, compared to Goodfellas. Yeah. Being John Malkovich. Rob in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Look, I get it. You all love mob movies. Film Spotting Nation's collective dream is apparently the Coen brothers directing Michael Fassbender playing a gangster. I'm in. When's that going to happen? Yeah, take my money. But maybe, just maybe, we can give them something else to inspire them. Chad Hill in Monticello, Arkansas says, My hopes aren't high that Malkovich will take this one. So if anyone wants to join me, I'll be going through the portal on the seven and a half floor of the Martin Flummer building with my copy of Being John Malkovich. Uh, no. No, it's Sam gone. Sam and Adam will find you, Chad. Nice try. Goodfellas, 70%. Malkovich, gone. Just 30%. Goodbye, John. That brings us to our number one overall seed, Quentin Tarantino and Pulp Fiction, up against certainly lighter fare, feel-good fare, Pixar's Toy Story. This is just going to be cruel, isn't it? Willie Evans says, Buzz looks at Jesse and grabs her hand. Jesse grabs Bullseye's hoof. Slinky, Dog, Ham, and Rex embrace. Mr. Potato Head turns to his wife, and the two join the final embrace. Woody searches his surroundings, looking for some last-ditch hope to escape certain death. There will be no aliens to save our heroes today. Instead, one by one, they accept their fate, embracing as they fall into the chasm of the Pulp Fiction buzzsaw. Yeah, there's no claw this time to save the day. And, Willie, that's sweet, but also very sad. Ben Chambers, following up that thought for Willie, says, I love that moment, but it comes in the third film. This is the one where toys come alive in the sandbox to terrorize a young boy. <laughs> so it deserves to go down? I guess so. Is that the implication? Kevin Kiley, come on, would you rather own a Buzz slash Woody toy or a Gimp kit? Toy Story, <laughs> and it is not close. Well, you put it that way. Yeah, then how do you vote Pulp Fiction? Andrew Mount with this comment. Josh, do you want to do the Massacre Theater honors? You are a toy. Well done. Yeah. No rehearsal at all. Not at all. Just well, sprung actually, that on you. I, I do that daily. <laughs> how did this one come out, Josh? Do I have to read this? You do. This I, I feel like I'm You can't stomping. be surprised. No, I'm not surprised. But yeah. to actually make it final, I'm stomping on somebody's toy here. Pulp Fiction won with 66% of the vote. Our number four seed then, The Silence of the Lambs. More, more joy. More just... This is just getting cruel. Happiness. Sunflowers. We've knocked off, we've and... knocked off a lovely romance, a wonderful <laughs> children's film. Mm-hmm. And here we're going Silence of the Lambs versus Dazed and Confused. Yes. Handy, and I know what's going to happen. Handy Barker with a great name says, I'm sure Dazed and Confused will get its freshman hazing and fry like bacon. Take one for the team. Get no free pass from mom after a night at the moon tower in this round. But as someone who lived through the last day of school, 1976... Losing this one forever is not all right, all right, all right, but it will lose. And you deserve every freshman double swat coming to you for making it happen. But I will keep my copies forever because an amazing thing happens with this film and the characters in it. 
As I get older, they stay the same age. What, what's with all these people rebelling and just claiming they're going to keep their copies yeah, no matter what happens? Nope. It does not. Aaron Teachman in D.C., if Science of the Lambs offers slightly less insight into everyday experience, it more than makes up for that in its visual examination of trauma and survival. It hurts me a bit to vote against the languid summer Texas days and nights that Linklater conjures for us in Dazed and Confused, but it's a small price to pay for holding on to Demi's masterful and exquisitely visual psychological thriller. Well argued by both. This one wasn't any closer than the last one, though, Josh. Same results exactly. Silence of the Lambs wins with 66% of the vote. That brings us to the Wachowski sisters, The Matrix, versus Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, Chris Massa of the Massa Minute in Pittsburgh writes, The Matrix is a hugely influential piece of sci-fi brilliance, but Unforgiven is a timeless masterwork that only becomes more relevant. And as good as The Matrix is, I can't help but feel like its violence hasn't aged well. The Matrix has a much higher body count than Unforgiven, but none of that bloodshed resonates. In Unforgiven, every shot fired feels like a punch to the gut. The Matrix may have shown us the, quote, real world, but Unforgiven shows us what it means to live in it. Here's Joe Antonioni. The Matrix is one of the greatest film stories of all time so good, we use the entire concept as an immediately recognizable descriptor of all things uncanny, threateningly futuristic, or depressingly mundane. Oh man, it's like we live in the Matrix. It's also an original, meaningful, action-packed franchise launcher, which is notable in today's reboot-slash-sequel, or Matrix. Joe only forgot, whoa. The results, Josh? I think this one is an upset yes. with the Matrix taking it, yep. 57% of the vote. Not a big upset, but yes, technically Unforgiven was seated just higher than the Matrix. I don't think this surprises anyone and certainly not the selection committee. David Fincher, Fight Club versus Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. Here's Evan Wilcox. In a battle between weirdly underrated but bro-loved movies with great music, great romance, and great endings, I guess I'm voting Jackie Brown. For one, its romance is between adults, and the subterfuge around that romance is entirely of the character's own making. Fight Club is the first Fincher movie with ideas in its head, but Jackie Brown has people in its heart. I'll take the latter every time. Well, I disagree because I think Seven also has some ideas in its head, but Evan makes a great case, and we both voted for Jackie Brown. Josh, this hurts too. Yeah, this is sad to see. Fight Club won with 57%. I'm going to miss Jackie Brown. Yeah, but closer than I maybe thought it would be. I don't know if that gives you any solace. How about our L.A. porn matchup, Boogie Nights versus the Coen Brothers? The Big Lebowski. Here's Evan from Denver. I've always felt that The Big Lebowski is more fun to quote than it is to actually watch. Hmm. Uh, that was my argument, Evan. It's the perfect film to be incinerated by film spotting men as people will keep it alive in a better form, quoting their favorite parts to each other. Maybe so. Mike H., just because a movie is endlessly quoted by the annoying guy named Dave at your office doesn't make it less worthy on its own merits. Or Adam. The Big Lebowski is an existential masterpiece and Jeff Bridges' performance is a once-in-a-lifetime thing of beauty. Oh, that might be true. Sam in Kansas City, I'd rather just keep both films. Can we make that happen? I vote for the film with the great performances from Julianne Moore and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, and you see what Sam was doing there? I get it. Yeah, great performances from both of those actors in both films. And this is another technical upset. Boogie Nights seated slightly higher. I think we all expected the big Lebowski to abide and the dude prevails 56% to 44%. And now here is where Josh either... I don't want to scroll down. He either screams to the heavens, sort of like Brad Pitt at the end of David Fincher's Seven, Ugh. or he lets out that 
that scream of joy because his beloved Rushmore will get to continue going to school, as it were. Josh Neil Mitchell says, if this was Moonrise Kingdom, the Royal Tenenbaums, or the Life Aquatic, this would be more of a struggle. I love Wes. I love Rushmore. But this is Fincher at his most streamlined, his most effective, his most chilling. Seven has to exist. Oh, Neil. All right. I'm, I'm scrolling slowly because I can't bear the results yet. Allison in Birmingham. I love both films, but I'll forever be bitter that less than 20 listeners helped Seven beat Reservoir Dogs in the last Last round. Bitter to the point that I burned my film spotting t-shirt. Ouch. Rushmore gets my vote. Now there is an asterisk that says I plan on buying another t-shirt or maybe five so I can be just as dramatic next year. <laughs> we like this approach a yes. lot. Chad Hill again in Monticello, Arkansas. I wonder if Max Fisher's stage recreation of Seven would be enough to get by on in absence of the real thing. Oh, you know it I would mean, be. I mean, I would pay to see that too. <laughs> Absolutely. I definitely would. Okay. <laughs> the moment of truth, Josh. I'm going to do the honors for you. It was a tight one again. Mm-hmm. Seven, sort of the Cinderella, the bloody Cinderella of this tournament. But the clock has struck midnight. Rushmore wins 52%. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 52 to 48. So proud of you, voters. Rushmore goes on. That brings us then to your Elite Eight matchups. That's it. After starting with actually not just 64 films, but 73, losing one on a technicality down to 72. Then we had some play-ins. 64 now down to eight. And, and they Rushmore are. is one of the eight. It is one of the eight. Oh, it makes me so happy. Yeah. Pulp Fiction versus Fight Club. Oh. We also have The Silence of the Lambs versus The Big Lebowski. Josh, let's go back. Pulp Fiction, Fight Club. Pulp that fiction. can't be a tough one. Pulp yeah, fiction, it's Pulp right? fiction. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Silence of the Lambs versus Lebowski. So I voted against Silence of the Lambs yep. and I voted against the Big Lebowski and I just, you know, supported some slander against the Big Lebowski. Right. Between these two, I'm going to go Silence of the Lambs. You I'm going to stick with my yeah. other Cohen films are stronger for me. <sighs> It's crazy because I keep alternating. I keep I know. alternating between voting out Silence of the Lambs and voting for it. And I'm back now on voting for it. As much as okay. I do love Lebowski and I really do appreciate it, I'm back to wanting the technical brilliance of Silence of the Lambs to be something that we can all appreciate in the future. And I know that I'm making a terrible choice. This is why we call it Film Spotting Madness. Goodfellas versus The Matrix. So for me, The Matrix has just suffered by really tough matchups throughout. I think I voted against it each time, even though I hugely appreciate The Matrix for all the reasons that we yeah. heard from listeners. We've had some great takes. But I think I'm going to vote against it again. I yeah. think Goodfellas is just too strong, too landmark, too peak Scorsese for me to go against it at yep. this point. Okay. So that brings us to Fargo. Versus oh, Rushmore. Oh. If it was Lebowski versus Rushmore, you wouldn't even hesitate. No, no, I wouldn't hesitate. I, I, and in this case, I'm hesitating. What has it been? Four seconds? Okay, Rushmore. <laughs> At least you didn't do the shoulder thing again, the shrug no, this, this time. You care too much. deserves much more consideration. Okay, well, for me, I think I'm going to continue my trend of voting against Rushmore. And this time, I don't feel bad about it because I even like Rushmore. You do, you do. But I love Fargo more. Those are our votes. We can't wait to see how your votes go. You can participate now by going to filmspotting.net slash madness. And we have to update you on how the bracket contest is going. Yes. Is it a good trade-off for you that Rushmore is advancing even if you are not? Yeah. Okay. I'd rather the You'll film take that trade than I dodge a terrible Adam Sandler Netflix movie. Okay. So that is the punishment. Yes, it is. For the third year in a row, the fourth year of madness, but only the third year that we've done a bracket challenge between me, 
you, producer Sam, and the founding father of Film Spotting Madness listener Mike Merrigan. And it just so happens that two Adam Sandler movies have come out each year in conjunction with The End of Madness, and it's happening again. He keeps cranking them out. He keeps cranking them out, and you keep losing, Josh. I am in first place with 88 points. I got seven of the eight Elite Eight right. Shawshank was the only one I had wrong, and I had that wrong in round two. So that wasn't an option to get right. I got all seven I could, and all four of my final four picks are still alive. You're sitting pretty. I'm sitting pretty well. Sam is in second place with 85 points. He also had seven of the Elite Eight correct. He got Reservoir Dogs wrong in round two, and because he had it advancing to the final four, he's only got three of his final four Uh still alive. That then takes us down a notch. Mm -hmm. We're going down a level to Mike Merrigan, third place with 75 points, only five of the Elite Eight correct. He went with Boogie Nights, lost out to Lebowski, and then in round two, he thought train spotting and Reservoir Dogs would both advance. They did not. So that explains why he's got a little bit of a lower score there. He still, though, has, Josh, three of his final four alive. Mm. And then there's you. Mm-hmm. You're actually tied with Mike. Okay. 75 points. So That's that seems good. promising. Yes. Like Mike, you had five of eight right this round. You wrongly predicted that before Sunrise would advance. And then in round two, you got Magnolia and Reservoir Dogs wrong. You have only two of your final four that's alive. That's not good. And maybe... By well, my math, that's not good. It's not good. Okay. Yeah. And worst of all, you had before Sunrise as your runner-up. I did. I mm-hmm. had it in the championship. You had it in the championship. And it's huh. now out. How did that happen? I don't know. You apparently thought listeners it's just loved the, it more than they do. That sunniness, that ha- that positivity that I misguidedly thought uh-huh. listeners had. Might prevail. It, it got trounced. So do I have a shot? What's what, what does this mean? Joe here? Pesci. <laughs> And Hannibal Lecter. Am I out or is there still a fight for last place? Well, speaking of math, I'm not at all smart enough to actually go through the different permutations of what could happen over these final eight picks. I'm going to take that as I've got a shot at not being in last place. I think mathematically it is possible that you could finish third. Mathematically, I I think it's possible. It's just highly unlikely. Mathematical hope. I'll take it. <laughs> Voting for Film Spotting Madness is open. Again, at filmspotting.net slash madness. Vote now. Invite your friends. They're welcome to participate. The polls do go live every Friday at midnight, central time. Actually, usually a little bit earlier. If you head over sometime on Thursday night, little secret, I post the polls a little bit early at filmspotting.net, and then the polls close Monday at 5 p.m., And that's our show. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an MP3 file or leave us a short voicemail. Our number is 312-264-0744. Of course, you can also send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. Over at filmspotting.net, you can also find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives. That's all in the show archives. Also, if you haven't already, please do check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. We've grown in those 13 years to include The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release, opening in Chicago this weekend is Steven Soderbergh's Unsane. We shared our thoughts earlier in the show and in wide release, Midnight Sun, a 17-year-old girl, suffers from a condition that prevents her from being out in the sunlight. And 
Pacific Rim Uprising. I was such a big fan of the Del yeah, Toro. Yeah, you excited about this? We both like John Boyega quite a bit, but no, I'm not excited at all oh, about I, I was Uprising. hoping you would give me a report as the Pacific Rim expert. No, but I know you'll be going to Sherlock Gnomes. Oh. No? The, you know how we run into trailers? Like yeah. certain trailers that are just seen in it. front of everything? Somehow I haven't seen it. Sherlock Gnomes. I think, it, I think they're even out. pitching this thing in front of Unsane at this point. <laughs> Next week, we will get to the Elite Eight results and the final four matchups of Film Spotting Madness and Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. Look for that discussion next week. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed this show, would you please tell other folks about it? You can do that by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.